In June, torrential rainfalls washed out roads on the northern peninsula, cutting off access to the town of Anglis. Wildfires raged in Labrador, upward of a hundred this season. And the ocean waters continue warming, putting fish and other species on a deadly path to extinction. Last fall, post-tropical storm Fiona devastated Portabasque, washing homes into the ocean and claiming the life of one woman. Before that, wildfires on the island shuttered the only highway to Con River in St. Albans on the south coast. And for years, melting sea ice in Labrador has been eroding a way of life for Inuit. Floods, fires, and hurricanes aren't new. But the frequency, intensity, and unpredictability of extreme weather events? Well, that's growing. Earlier this month, as we near the end of the hottest summer on record globally, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced, Climate breakdown has begun. Scientists have long warned what our fossil fuel addiction will unleash, he said. Our climate is imploding faster than we can cope, with extreme weather events hitting every corner of the planet. Surging temperatures demand a surge in action, Leaders must turn up the heat now for climate solutions. We can still avoid the worst of climate chaos, and we don't have a moment to lose. That climate chaos is largely the result of our burning of fossil fuels like oil and gas and coal. So when the news came last May that Equinor was putting Bay du Nord on hold? Why weren't we cheering? Do we see the full picture of where we are and where we're headed? I get it. Everyday life is challenging enough, especially with the cost of living these days. That alone is a massive crisis. So is it that we don't have the time or mental energy to focus on things like climate change? Maybe. But maybe that's something that we need to start talking about more. The thing is, climate breakdown is not going away. And the longer we ignore it, the worse off we'll be with all the same things. Affordability, transportation, cost of food, healthcare, infrastructure, all the things we want for our children and future generations. The good news for those now paying attention to the climate crisis? Others have been on it for years. They've followed the science, the trends, the realities on the ground for everyday people like you and me. And I'm not just talking about scientists. I'm talking about the people behind the many efforts to turn the tide, to reverse course, to make sure there is a future for those whose fate we are currently deciding. We're about to hear from a few of them. I'm Justin Brake. Welcome to Berry Grounds. It's May 31st, 2023, and hundreds of people from government, industry, and NGOs are gathered at the St. John's Convention Center for Day 2 of EnergyNL's three-day annual conference and exhibition. 
but the mood is unusually somber. Just hours earlier, Norwegian oil giant Equinor dropped a bombshell on the province's oil and gas industry. It announced it was shelving its planned Badenord project for up to three years, citing cost increases and challenging market conditions. Some believe the project will never come to fruition, but others are taking a more optimistic tone. Here's Energy NL CEO Charlene Johnson speaking to delegates at the conference in May immediately following Equinor's announcement. We have seen much market volatility in recent years in our industry and in the water economy. As we all know, this project has seen numerous delays in the past number of years, and this is just another bump in the road to what we still feel will be a successful project. We have seen this before, and we've come out the other side. We will do so again. Not everyone shares in that optimism, though. Their optimism is aimed at a different outcome for Bay de Nord. This is hugely significant because Equinor's project here was supposed to be the first of many other projects that were going to be coming in this new area. That's Angela Carter, a well-known energy and climate policy researcher from Newfoundland. She's author of the book Fossilized, Environmental Policy in Canada's Petro Provinces and an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Memorial University. She says the comments from industry representatives at that same Energy NL conference just the day before Equinor's announcement were telling. To hear the voices of those industry representatives, Equinor is considered a linchpin, and it's attracting new investment into this new area in the offshore. And so Industry folks were waiting with anticipation to hear the good news about when Equinor was going to be proceeding with the project. Now, to hear that Equinor is putting on the brakes because of costs and market volatility, this is yet another signal that we are in a new moment of energy policy. Angela Carter's not wrong. We are in a new moment of energy policy. The government, fossil fuel companies, and renewable energy advocates all agree. But here in Newfoundland and Labrador, what's contested is what the transition from fossil fuels to clean renewable energy should look like. And we have tremendous opportunity here, my friends. An opportunity to grow a low-carbon solution to meet the world's current demand. An opportunity to once again, as we have before in the 90s, to reimagine and redefine our own future, our destiny. Our hands are firmly on the wheel as we move forward. We will continually explore alternative energy sources from wind to clean, green hydrogen to the hydroelectric capacity we have all known for years. We will do so, however, as we fully realize the potential of Beta Nor. That's Premier Andrew Fury speaking in April 2022 after Badenord was released from federal environmental assessment. His unwavering optimism and confidence in the project sounds a lot like his predecessors who championed Muskrat Falls, touting the Megadam as a beacon of light for the province. But is Fury's optimism founded? On one hand, political leaders talk positively about potential megaprojects because it gives investors confidence that their investments aren't risky gambles. Remember Energy NL CEO Charlene Johnson? Not only is she an industry advocate, 
She's the province's former environment minister. The revolving door between government and industry isn't breaking news, but it highlights the deep entrenchment of petroculture in Newfoundland and Labrador, an indicator that maybe our political leader's optimism has influences beyond science and facts. Here is how Johnson finished her statement on Bay du Nord at last spring's industry conference. Our members will continue to prepare and show as a sector that we are ready to play a leading role in one of the world's lowest carbon energy projects. As you have seen this week, there are so many reasons for optimism in our industry, from our current offshore projects to exploration programs and renewable energy developments. And despite this news, we will continue to remain optimistic, both for our industry and the Beijing North Project. Let's continue to showcase who we are, what we can do, and how successful we will be. Under the Conservative governments of Danny Williams, Kathy Dunderdale, Tom Marshall, and Paul Davis, we championed fossil fuel extraction and the so-called clean and green hydropower that would come from Muskrat Falls. Under the Liberal governments of Dwight Ball and Andrew Fury, we continue championing offshore oil, and now wind and hydrogen. The two political parties that have taken turns governing our province, well, they share similar outlooks for oil and gas here. And they're not wrong in arguing that we need to develop renewable energy, especially given the window of opportunity to get in on the green energy transition. But they've both told us that we can have our cake and eat it too. And if we disagree? Well, here's what Premier Fury implied at that Bay du Nord announcement. Newfoundland and Labrador, my friends, is perfectly positioned right now at this time of transition. And as I've said before, we are quite capable of holding two thoughts in our head at once. Just yesterday, we announced that we are lifting the moratorium on onshore wind development and expanding the scope and the role of the Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador Offshore Energy Board to include wind and clean hydrogen. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are intelligent enough to understand that. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians can hold two thoughts in our heads at once. We are intelligent enough to understand that we can expand fossil fuels and renewable energy at the same time. Okay, but what about Equinor's pause of Bay du Nord? When Fury touts the oil industry, is he being realistic? Here's Angela Carter's outlook for the coming decade. What do you think is going to happen in the coming months in the next few years? As we approach 2030, so that is the point that international energy analysts have indicated that global oil demand is going to be in decline. So by 2030, we have declining global demand for oil, sinking thereafter never to recover. So this isn't going to be an up and down curve. It's not accurate to talk about boom and bust anymore. We are approaching the moment of decline from here on in. That's 2030. The closer that we get to that year, uh, this is where we're going to see, I believe, based on the evidence, more and more pulling back of firms from costly projects. And it becomes less likely as time advances that this project will proceed. The projects that are right now 
in the process of expanding are typically established projects where firms have already sunk in capital, they've developed the projects, they're in production, but it's the new projects to expand production. These are the ones in particular that are going to be picked off early um, by declining demand, just just by sheer um, market logic. Despite these warnings from Carter and many other energy and climate policy experts, the province is forging ahead with its plan to go all in on holding two thoughts in its head at once, even though those thoughts contradict one another. When we come back, what an investigation by The Independent turned up about the province's delegation to the Netherlands last May for an international conference on hydrogen. Stay where you're too. Countries are keenly interested in our green hydrogen potential. When Premier Fury and Industry, Energy and Technology Minister Andrew Parsons returned from the Global Hydrogen Summit in Rotterdam last May, they continued their messaging. Between critical minerals, lower carbon oil, and an abundance of renewable energy, our province is well positioned during this time of transition, Mr. Speaker. We will continue, continue to help tackle climate change while building a more sustainable Newfoundland and Labrador for all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. What they didn't say upon their return? That they had quietly embraced a new energy framework developed by private energy consulting firm Wood Mackenzie, a scheme that has a name and specific goals of extending the life of fossil fuel industry amid climate breakdown. That scheme? to turn Newfoundland and Labrador into a so-called energy super basin. Not only that, but as the documents we obtained through an accessed information request reveal, the world's first net zero potential energy super basin. What's an energy super basin? Here's Andrew Latham, Vice President of Energy Research for Wood Mackenzie. In a video posted on Wood Mackenzie's website, he says the race to reduce carbon emissions has presented the fossil fuel industry with two key imperatives. It isn't just about being the lowest cost of supply. Um, they also need to decarbonize. You know, you need to have the lowest, uh, lowest carbon supply as well. Um, and really, our, our thinking was, well, if you were setting up uh, the industry today to meet those two goals, you perhaps wouldn't put it in exactly the same places where it, is, it has grown its legacy business. And so that, that gets us in, into this idea, well, you know, is, is upstream oil and gas coming from the best places to meet that, that sustainability goal that it now has, the low carbon side of the equation? One of the Liberal government's main talking points here in Newfoundland and Labrador is that we have that oil. But do we? Angela Carter says the debate around whether fossil fuels can be clean or low carbon is a red herring. And that we're not talking about a very important scientific fact. That to address the climate crisis, not only do we have to stop creating new fossil fuel projects, we also have to wind down the ones already in production. The climate science is abundantly clear that in order to stay within some level of climate safety, 
which has been identified as 1.5 degrees, but we're just over one degree of warming and we have all of the climate chaos before us. So I just, I just want to put a little footnote there, <laughs> a little marker to say 1.5 degrees is not safe, but the global community has agreed that that's what we're trying to stay within. By the way, we're going to exceed very likely uh, 1.5 degrees very soon, actually. So in order to have some semblance of climate safety for most people going into the future, that means that we have to keep much of the fossil fuel reserves that we know of in the ground. In fact, about 40% of all of the reserves that are currently in existing projects, so these are ongoing projects that are existing, about 40% of that can never be extracted if we are to stay within climate safety. So what does this mean? Not only does it mean that we can have no further exploration and no new projects, and that is absolutely clear by climate science, we know that for a fact, but what is even perhaps more pressing is that existing projects have to wind down production. And that's a piece that we're not hearing enough, I believe, but that is backed up by the science. But hold on. Before we hear more about the reasons for winding down oil production, let's try to understand this energy superbasin scheme a little bit better. Wood McKenzie says there are three main things that make up a potential energy superbasin. One, abundant oil and gas reserves. Two, potential for renewable energy, like hydrogen. And three, the potential for a carbon and capture storage industry. We haven't heard a ton about carbon capture and storage in the province, but it's a big piece of climate policy, and we probably should start investigating it more. Connor Curtis is a Cornerbrook native and head of communications for Sierra Club Canada. His job is all about communicating climate research and energy policy for one of the biggest environmental organizations in the country. He says the government's belief that carbon capture and storage technology can help prop up the oil and gas industry is seriously flawed. The idea that we could capture the emissions from polluting projects and store them somewhere, usually underground, it, it's often actually connected to the notion that by storing those emissions underground, you could actually extract more oil and gas in the process of doing so by effectively using them to pump out that extra oil and gas. The reality of the technology is that it's hugely expensive, and even the industry uh, acknowledges it's prohibitively expensive. Even when it does work, it's never really been shown to be successful in a lot of the cases where it's implemented to a degree that it really solves the problems of emissions. And it's definitely not scalable on, on a world stage or even, I would argue, on a provincial stage to something meaningful in terms of reducing emissions. And we've known that actually for, for a number of years now. There was a, a study actually, I believe, about 10 years ago that showed that was not, it, it was not scalable. So it should not be a surprise to any, you know, policy folks who are listening to this that that's the case. Uh, if it is, I would highly recommend that you treat it with a, a huge degree of skepticism and not invest time and money and effort into it. To my mind, and I think to the research that's been done on it, carbon capture and storage is a waste of an investment, uh, particularly if we're talking about any sort of public investment. And I did see something very concerning regarding the new uh, green fund that the province is looking at setting up that, uh, you know, there were calls for some of that money to potentially be used for, uh, quote unquote, you know, cost prohibitive measures to help the oil and gas industry, right? So what we're really talking about is, is potentially the, you know, provincial government paying money to, to try and make carbon capture and storage a, a reality. 
that is a terrible investment, especially it's a terrible public investment. If you give that money to the oil and gas industry, you will never see it again. It will just disappear. And to be honest, carbon capture and storage is a scam. It's uh, something that diverts investment away from, again, renewable energy, real solutions that we have, that we know we can implement, where any sort of public investment should be going. Okay, so to recap so far, the Fury government went to Europe earlier this year and pitched. They, well, they actually refuted the term pitch and said they were merely signaling to investors. They signaled that our province wants to become an energy super basin. The energy super basin scheme was developed by Wood Mackenzie for the purpose of extending the life of the fossil fuel industry, not for the purpose of moving to clean energy as soon as possible. To be an energy super basin, a jurisdiction needs abundant fossil fuels, a lot of renewable energy, and the willingness to embrace yet-to-be-proven carbon capture and storage technology. But wait, there's more. When we broke this story, the Progressive Conservatives and the NDP put out statements that they were appalled the Liberals pitched, sorry, signaled, this scheme to industry and investors in Europe without bringing it to the legislature and without bringing it to the people of the province first. That's not all. In the documents we uncovered, we also found an illustration of a potential hydrogen pipeline in Labrador, also something that apparently wasn't discussed publicly. And those pipelines cross unseated Innu territory. In a handout the government brought to the hydrogen conference, their only mention of indigenous peoples are a couple lines saying the government is, quote, committed to developing projects that consider the rights and perspectives of indigenous governments and organizations. And that government, quote, believes in the principle of early and meaningful engagement with indigenous governments and organizations as being essential in developing hydro projects. No mention of the Innu Nation's outstanding land claim or the Nunatuavut Community Council's land claim, which overlaps it. No mention of free, prior, and informed consent and no mention of the fact that Indigenous people have not consented to these proposed plans. Innu Nation Grand Chief Simon Pokwe told us that the Innu's Aboriginal rights are not merely to be considered, they must be honoured, and also that any new energy development in Innu territory will require the agreement of the Innu Nation. The government and potential investors might want to recall that Inu and Inuit occupied the Muskrat Falls project and shut down construction when they believed the project threatened their rights. And that was even with an agreement from the Inu. Now that we know what the energy superbasin scheme entails and how the government tried to sneak it into the province's energy policy, would it even work? You can continue to develop oil and gas in tandem with renewable energy. We're past the point where that's possible. We know it doesn't fit within the climate budget that we have, within the carbon budgets that we have, that we cannot um, at the same time develop oil and gas and renewable energy, especially concerning within what I, I read was the notion that you would develop renewable energy to prop up oil and gas to create one of these super basins, as it's being termed. That bears an additional risk because not only is it continuing the dependence on oil and gas past the point where that dependence can, can be the case, but also if you are developing renewable energy, you want to do it in a way that's in the long term meant to facilitate renewable energy. It's meant to again, take the province off of oil and gas and put it onto renewable energy. And if you're diver diverting resources, 
in the development of renewable energy towards, you know, continuing the dependence on oil and gas. And really you're building that industry in the wrong direction, as opposed to building it in a way that provides the stability to communities, that provides the stability to the workforce in the long term. The whole point of diversifying the economy away from oil and gas is to provide people with options that aren't oil and gas. Earlier this year, Angela Carter co-authored a report called Mapping Fossil Fuel Lock-In and Contestation in Eastern Canada. And fossil fuel lock-in? Well, that's another reason why the Liberals' energy super basin plans are short-sighted. What is carbon lock-in and why is it something we need to be thinking about right now? So lock-in happens through a variety of ways. Some of it's the material infrastructure in the ground that the public has paid for in some ways through subsidies. Firms have sunk money into that they are wanting to get a return on. So those are that's sort of an infrastructure lock-in. But there's also the politics and the economics, too, that keeps us locked onto a future of continued extraction of oil and gas. And that's things like, for example, um, lobbying, a very strong lobbying force, an aggressive lobbying force from the oil sector trying to sway governments to adopt policies that are conducive to expansion or don't get in the way. And so we see this uh, happening right across Canada, and that's been well documented. So then there's also, and here's where I think, you know, it gets a little bit more nuanced and complicated, but it's the sort of cultural ideas, dominant cultural notions of what development looks like. And here in this province, the industry started producing right at the moment where we had the cod fisheries collapse in the province. And so oil was very much imagined as the savior. And I, I'm saying that with air quotes because that's exactly how some political leaders talked about the oil and gas sector for Newfoundland. It was going to save us from a history of underdevelopment. Uh, this is very powerful, especially in the Newfoundland and Labrador context where it's been since settlers arrived, um, this has been the, the great struggle is how do we diversify? How do we become economically secure so that people can live well here? So to say that oil is the going to be the saving grace, or it's going to be the way that we can become masters of our own destiny, to use uh, the words of one political leader, to say those words uh, is, is powerful and uh, indicates that this is not just about oil per se, it's about something else, something that's much, much bigger that resonates with people. So we get locked into this notion that there is one way of keeping our society safe, which is oil development. Of course, that is false. On Friday, hundreds of high school and university students marched on Confederation Hill in St. John's to demand an end to fossil fuel extraction in Newfoundland and Labrador. The event was organized by Fridays for Future as part of a global climate strike. We leave you with some highlights from that march. If you want to support Berry Grounds and the Independence climate coverage, head to our website where you can join hundreds of others in supporting local independent news. Berry Grounds is written, produced, and hosted by me, Justin Brake. Thanks for listening. Bay du Nord is supposed to be located not too far away from our protected eco-zone and could severely harm fish ecosystems that are held dear to many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Equinor has claimed that the risk of an oil spill from Bay du Nord is minimal, 
but scientists who analyze Equinor's own data refute this assumption. DFO assessments say that spills could affect capelin populations, which is a vital food niche for fish and culturally traditional food staple for many people. Canada's regulations are out of date, and we are not prepared to contain a serious oil spill. This would devastate our fishing industry and fishing populations. But we, we as a province, know what it's like to experience extreme environmental disaster. Not too long ago, our fishing industry and local communities and economies suffered because of political stoicism, neglectful policies, and failure to consider community-based solutions and predictive models to continue environmental sustainability. Not much has changed since then. We as people, innovators, and workers have adapted as much as we could, but now we are on the brink of massive environmental and economic collapse. We have northern regions and waterways that are being drastically affected. Labrador has been in a climate emergency long before today. We have the capacity to move to more sustainable industries that will not only help us hit our climate targets, but will also diversify our economies, protect our lands and waters, and ensure that there is a future for all living things in the years to come. We need more reciprocity into our communities and less extraction. Money can be invested into sustainable avenues. It must support measures to make, in a, make sure Newfoundland and Labrador isn't left behind as the globe transitions out of oil and gas. This involves transferring all oil and gas skill sets to skill sets that have, been, have the capacity to work in local, sustainable industries. <laughs> Our workers deserve local labor markets and local economies that keep them home and offer sustainable growth. Members, politicians, stakeholders, to pay attention to what the youth are saying today. It's their future. You do not have a right to ruin it. They deserve committed plans. Committed plans from all levels of leadership to stop this environmental dystopia from further occurring. Money will not save you when the earth is on fire. Money will not feed you when there is a massive drought. 